Welcome to episode 11 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to episode 11 of Data Driven Security Podcast. Joining me as always is Bob Rudis. Bob, what is new in your world? Yosemite is new in my world, Jay. And how's that going for you? What, uh, what, you know what? what? Yosemite, uh, for those people who may not be in the know. So that's the latest, like OS X 1010, uh, the latest revision of the, the Mac operating system. And while, while interesting, and pretty and you know somewhat feature rich it has been nothing but a privacy nightmare and a data scientist's nightmare at the same time too Incompatib so yeah incompatibilities across the board um, can't use Valgrind so I can't stuff over there um, all, tons of issues on Stack Overflow X11 crap reinstalling everything you know the, the 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 whole upgrade of doom if you actually manage to like actually not you know, let it take the 12 hours if you had anything in user local. And I, how does, how do people that work for Apple not have things in user local? Like, is there a policy like at Apple that says do not stick stuff in user local? Like it's outlawed, like on the bulletin board outside the cafeteria, it's like, don't put stuff in user local. Like no one uses homebrew at Apple, really? Seriously? Anyway, so I, I we might cover some more of it later, but just a warning to all people, you know, if you haven't already been bit by the Yosemite stuff, I would hold off to like 10.10.1 comes out because it's just been an absolute nightmare. I can't even get R curl and curl to compile natively and work well together. So I, I think everyone should just hold off. Wow. Well, I just upgraded like 30 minutes before we did this podcast here. So it's always good. Well, well wait, you, you put Yosemite on your Amiga? Yeah, that's funny, Bob. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a guest today, Bob. That is true. And I'm outnumbered apparently on this particular one too. What do you mean? Well, it's it's Jason Trost. Right. Well, that's two, you... J two, two, two Jasons to one Bob. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, you're outnumbered. Yeah. Uh, so, welcome, Jason. Welcome to the podcast, episode 11. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So, you know, we joked when we did our first real episode, we had um, who Michael Reutman, Alex Pinto, and Russ Thomas on, and the joke was that we've exhausted our entire list of possible guests. <laughs> people who do data science and, and security. Um, but we've managed to find some other people, including you, right, who work in this field. Um, and let's let's talk about your background, though, because I think it's there's some interesting things there, because most people either come from, uh, from working in security and then they get into data analysis or they've done data analysis and they try to get into security. And it's, it's one or the other, but I think that you have a, a sort of a mix, right? I would agree with that. So... Um... My background, I started off uh, getting a computer science degree from Florida State uh, back in 2004. Uh, from there, I knew that I wanted to get into, secu like, do a security-focused uh, graduate program. So, and at the time, I really got into uh, computer science in general because I was interested in hacking and security and just, um, I don't know if it was some movies out at the time or what, but it just, that's kind of what, what interested me. So uh, from there, went to Georgia Tech, uh, did a master's program in InfoSec, and really was focused on primarily, you know, security, uh, all aspects of security. 
Um, when I was getting my master's, uh, my master's project was actually on DNS covert channel detection. And uh, I used machine learning and um, anomaly detection techniques to do that. So uh, that's kind of my first dip into data science. And at the time, uh, I wouldn't even have called it data science. Uh, it was really just using the tools that you know we had available to try and solve this problem. Um, from, th from there, I really kind of moved away from the machine learning data science for a little bit. Uh, I started working for Department of Defense. Uh, and I was there for about five years, working on primarily internal projects for doing like large-scale data mining and um, visualization. I'd say not really machine learning, but more like just mining and finding relationships in the data. Um, that kind of eventually led me uh, into like the whole big data space. So getting into uh, Hadoop, um, I started learning about Accumulo. Uh, I was one of the people who worked on the original Accumulo project. It was spawned out of, out of the Department of Defense. Um, I helped train people use that project to build large-scale analytics, and most of the people I, I worked with were working on security-related problems. Um, so I'd say at that time I would be considered more of like a data engineer um, working on security problems. And I've kind of been, um, about a year ago, I made a conscious decision to really get back into the machine learning stuff. It just, to me, is so interesting and so powerful. Um, so, you know, for at, at least the past year, I've been, like, making a conscious effort to work on machine learning projects either in my own time or, you know, during work, and really try and, like, uh, learn as much as I can about them. Um, so I would say I started off as a security person and have moved, you know, through the, the big data space and data engineering and now to the machine learning data science part. Um, and I, I kind of am always going back and forth between the three areas. Uh, mm -hmm. I find interesting thing, interesting topics in all three areas, so uh, I really like it. Yeah, I agree. There's a, a really great... Um, I don't know, when you mix those things together, there's so many interesting possibilities just open up. Um, so yeah, I, I agree, it's pretty interesting. Um, and your blog is at covert.io? Yes, that's right. And right now the, the leading post up there is called Some Interesting Security Papers. And I think some might be an understatement. Um, <laughs> well, then there's security data science papers, so there's more. So you've got two posts right there, the last two, right? Yes. The uh, security data science papers was uh, has been by far the most popular post that I've done. And I was a little surprised that it became as popular as it did. Um, so for the past probably three years, uh, I've been... I, I read a lot of papers and articles, so as I would read them, I would just kind of collect them and kind of categorize them all in my local system. Um, so um, the more I, had, I talked to people... Uh, in the security community, just really like I'd hear, you know, things like I haven't seen any research on this topic. You know, I would, you know, it would come to mind. Well, I've read, I remember reading a paper that's kind of related. I'll, I'll dig it up for you. So I was kind of always like digging up papers and sending them to people. So I yeah. figured it'd probably be good just to put all these on the internet. They're already kind of categorized and um, kind of grouped already. Uh, so I did that, and I got like 8,000 views in over two or three days, which was the most by far that my, my blog has gotten within that short amount of time. So it's been really interesting. Uh, so I, I intend to keep doing that sort of thing. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm working on now is taking those papers and the ones that I've read and extracting out, um, you know, what data sets do they use? Uh, what algorithms are they using? What are the feature sets they're using? Um, and kind of making like a, a codex of, or like a catalog uh, that makes it so 
if you have a specific sort of data set and you wanted to get into this, try it out. Use it for some reason for either research or operations. Here are some papers you could use to leverage that data. Um, I'm still working on that, and but I think that's going to be something that uh, people might be interested in as well. And, and at least it'll help me organize my thoughts as I'm kind of sifting through these papers. Yeah, definitely. Is that something that you might release at some point or make public? I'm, I'm definitely going to release it. I just need to clean it up. It's really raw right now. Um, but yeah, I intend to make it public for free, just like the, the papers. Oh, that's fantastic. Because I started doing that as well. I started going through those papers, the ones that I found interesting, and trying to take notes on the feature sets and the data sources and, you know, like you said, the algorithm and, and the results and things like that, interesting things about them and things like that. So that'd yeah, be great if you released that. Um, I, I completely agree. One of the things, that as you read through those papers, there's a lot of papers who use at least the same feature sets, um, maybe not 100% the same, but there's a lot of overlap, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, some of them have so much overlap that I'm surprised that the, the second one got published. But I think the reason is is there's there's not one central place you can go look and find this sort of thing. But um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And it seemed like a lot of them were coming out of Georgia Tech. A ton of them are coming out of Georgia Tech. That might be a bias in my selection because I know a lot of the researchers from Georgia Tech because I went there. And I, right. I worked with a couple of the ones who have published some of these papers. Um, and, and typically my, my process is find a paper somehow, either personal recommendation or you know just stumble upon it, read it, and then look at all the references. Any of the ones that look interesting kind of spider out from there and do the same thing over and over. So that could be, you know, selection bias because the Georgia Tech guys are uh, referencing each other because they, they talk to each other, and um, but I'm not sure. Now, I, I was going to ask you, like, is there some sort of gravitational well in Georgia Tech for security smart people? Because I, I, I've looked, I've actually done paper searches apart from, from what you've got where you are, and I'll just they, it isn't really a selection bias unless they just make them easier to find. You, that could be part of it, just a Google selection bias. But it just seems like there's an awful lot of smart folks coming out of there that, that, that are doing this type of work in security. So... That's a great point. Uh, in Atlanta, there's a pretty big security community. I think that probably started with ISS, which is Internet Security Systems. Um, a grad, a, actually, a dropout of Georgia Tech, and Chris, I believe Chris Krauss founded it, um, left Georgia Tech, started this company. The company was eventually acquired by IBM for like $1.3 billion or some, you know, some large sum of money. And I think that has spawned um, you know, entrepreneurs in, in Atlanta who are interested in security, starting small security startups, and that has helped the graduate program at Tech grow. And there, it could also be that there's so many good graduates there, they also have helped that business grow too. Um, but there's also Winky Lee is a professor from Georgia Tech who got his PhD a long time ago on data mining and security. I'd say he's probably one of the most influential uh, data mining and security guys out there. So most of his students you know, have followed on in that, that same path. So that also could be a reason why there's so many interesting data science and security papers coming out of tech because of Winky Lee, his, his students, and then you know everyone that he's kind of brought into tech. Good. Yep, definitely. And uh, it's just a great collection that you have there. And I, I understand why it's gotten so many hits, you know, because it's a, a really, really exhaustive collection, actually. So it's quite impressive. Thank you. And I, I hope to someday just to read through half of them at least. Um, <laughs> So let's talk about some of the projects that you've done. Um, one of them that I came across, actually you linked uh, some of these to me, the, the Clairvoyant Squirrel. And you presented on that one in uh, Flowcon in 2013. 
how did that one come about? Like what? Uh, maybe talk about what it is, and then talk about how it how it evolved into what it what it became. Um, so, Clairvoyant Squirrel is a project that we where we made a classifier for classifying passive DNS data uh, in real time as either malicious or benign, and kind of giving it a score. Uh, this project came about because at the time uh, I worked for a company, a small security startup, who had a ton of passive DNS data. Um, they had relationships with with ISPs that gave them, you know, passive DNS data uh, collected in real time, um, really with the goal of using it for security research. Uh, so because they had all this data, and because you know the ISPs and uh, some of their customers at the time had some, some you know um, problems with security, as everyone does, this was a research project that started. So uh, me and a guy named John Monroe, and John Monroe, I'd say, was the, the senior data scientist working on this project. Um, you know, start off with a huge uh, sample of the passive DNS, a huge sample of known malicious domains, um, and then uh, a huge sample of known benign domains. So be because we had all this data, we're able to um, really just start sifting through it and figuring out uh, what are good features we can extract. And um, so some of the features, um, were like the, the number of consonants in the domain, the entropy in the domain, um, I think the number of consecutive consonants, number of consecutive vowels, um, really all these features that if you if you have looked at a bunch of malicious domains in the past, you can kind of tell they just look sketchy. And what we did was kind of try and quantify um, why they look sketchy. And the reasons were, you know, a lot of times they have consecutive consonants or consecutive vowels because they're either random or random enough to be a cheap domain because a lot of these guys, um, you know, they're buying tons and tons of domains for the purpose of malware and, and um, they had to be throw away so they were, were cheap. So there was not many uh, domains that were dictionary words. Like those were typically more expensive. So we, um, that's, I'd say that's really what we tried to do. Um, and just took an iterative process. We had, uh, because we had all this data, we could, and we had a big Hadoop cluster, uh, we could, iterate really quickly, ended up building the classifier using offline data, and then we hooked it into a system that we had uh, that used um, Storm and um, Kafka and some other like real-time you know, processing systems to take this real-time data stream, which was about a, a billion events per day. Um, I think that's about five to 8,000 per second. Classify them and then use them for alerting and follow-on research. So that, that's kind of uh, how Clairvoyant Squirrel worked and you know, the reasons why we did it. Did that ever make it into like a production type environment? Not really. Um, it made it in to, I'd say, the back end of a production environment where it wasn't really ever exposed to customers, but it was uh, used in the back end for helping analysts to, I guess, um, start leads for analysts and things like that. So sort of, but not really. Good. That's good. And um, did you get any feedback on that? Like were people, the the people you're doing it with or for or anything like that? Was there good feedback from it? The feedback was typically uh, that it was useful. Um, we did have some false positives. We have a billion events per day. And even with, I think we had like a 98% um, accuracy, that 2% of a billion is still a huge number. So right. that's that's one of the reasons why we didn't make this like a, a user uh, exposed feature, but we would use it for like our internal analysts to, um, to to use it, so you, there was false positives. So dealing with the false positives was, I, I think, 
anyone who does anything with security and machine learning will know that's still a major issue. If you deal with huge amounts of events per day, even with a low false positive number, you're going to have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of false positives to sift through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if I remember, you took um, your malicious domains were from Conficker and another another botnet, something that I wasn't familiar with. Actually, um, we need to go back and look. Mirofet, Mirofet, Mirofet botnets. That sounds familiar. The the other place we had was an internal malware sandbox. Um, so it was thought it was three sources of mal of malicious uh, yeah. domains. Yeah. Seven thousand domains gathered from an internal malware sandbox. Yes. So. Good. And then, yeah, I mean, one of the challenges that um, we've come across is that these things, you know, the the malware, of course, is changing rapidly and um, having to retrain this, you know, for new things that appear. And so that having the internal malware sandbox with new samples coming in, I think, would be a great source to uh, keep up on this thing, right? Exactly. Um, that's exactly right. So because we had all this new data, we, we retrained about once a week. Um, and we didn't find retraining every day giving us much benefit, and it um, yeah. it just it added a little bit more overhead. So we retrained once a week, and it worked really well. Um, Good. And then your your next project, or maybe it was at the same time around the same time, but Binary Pig, um, where you presented at Black Hat uh, in 2013, and that was about uh, large scale malware analysis, correct? Yes. So. Um, we had a pretty massive um, collection and stream of malware that came in every day. So uh, I think it was in the tens of millions of, of samples that we had in our kind of backlog. And we had, uh, I think it was about 50,000 samples per day. I'd have to go back and check. Um, so we'd get these samples. They'd come in. We'd run. We started running them all in a dynamic malware sandbox. Um, we started getting overloaded. Our sandbox couldn't handle that many. So. Uh, we had to. We could only really do some of them per day, um, but we really wanted to be able to go back and kind of mine this his historic data set and use it for uh, threat intelligence, internal research, and um, really just discovery. See, see what's out there in this huge corpus of data. Um, so what we did was we built a um, static analysis, uh, basically platform that uses Hadoop. It allows you to take, you know, huge collections of malware, create sequence files, which are a it's a file format that Hadoop uses for uh, binary data. Um, so once you have your sequence file, you put it in HDFS, and from there you can leverage your Hadoop cluster to perform malware static analysis using existing tools. So we had a bunch of existing Python scripts just for doing the static malware analysis, and we wanted to be able to reuse them at scale. Uh, so that, that was kind of one of the one of the drivers of this system. Um, so and we also wanted to be able to take a malware analyst that we had on site who may not know anything about big data, um, have them write a script that does something, you know, tears the malware apart, extracts some informa interesting information, and then rerun this on either all the data or some subset of the data at scale. So this allowed us to do that. Um, it was pretty useful and pretty interesting. Um, one of the things we talked about at Black Hat that was kind of an, an interesting application of this was um, writing some, some Python scripts that extract all the icon files out of malware and then using those images as uh, a feature and kind of clustering on them. So taking the 
not just the ex like the exact hash of the image, but features of the image, like its color, uh, the edges, um, you know, things like that, and finding malware that's linked to other malware using its icons. And that was really just an exploratory internal research, but it was pretty interesting to see some of the results that came out of that. Um, just the fact that we could find actually a lot of malware related through its icon sets, because they, they'll pack the malware, but when you when you uh, run through run it through someone packing and pull out some of those icons, uh, they're the same, right? So that was interesting. Also, um, researching those icons, finding ones that look like standard icons like uh, Adobe Acrobat and Microsoft Office, you kind of start to, to see possibly um, how they were used. So they were trying to obviously fool the user into thinking that they were something that they were not. Uh, so that was kind of also interesting. That we found a, a ton of our samples uh, had that sort of those sorts of icons. So interesting. And how did that? How did the whole thing turn out? Was it pretty useful? And uh, and I assume that was for your day job. That was for my day job. Yeah, uh, it, it turned out to be pretty useful. Um, so we used it to, you know, mine all of our our malware as it came in. So every day we'd run a MapReduce job to run our current like analytics stack on it. And then anytime we came up with a really uh, useful new Python script, we add it to our collection and rerun it. Um, so it it was pretty useful. Um, I would say the only thing I, I kind of regret about this project is that uh, we did not make it. We didn't make the data available publicly. I think it would have been would have been very useful to the outside world to have this data, even though a lot of it's um, very much research grade. I think it would have been useful. So yeah, it was it was a useful project. Yeah. What were the reasons not to release the data? I'm not really sure, to be honest. Uh, it wasn't up to me. So I, I think okay. it was uh, worries about sensitivity of, of the data. Uh, yeah. But. Okay. All right. Just wondering. All right. Now let's talk about current day. And uh, what what are you working on now, Jason? What do you got in the hopper? So currently, I am the uh, director of ThreatStream Labs, which is our research and data science group at, at, at ThreatStream. Uh, ThreatStream has a platform for uh, managing threat indicator data across its entire lifecycle, from collection all the way to pushing that data into security devices. So um, that's kind of our, our product and our, our mission, um, is improving the security of companies and helping them to get more value out of their existing security products. So we have a ton of security data. Um, so. Um, my projects have mainly been about trying to extract more value from our existing data feeds, looking for more uh, data feeds, either ones that already exist out in the outside world or ones that we can uh, create derivatives from other feeds. Um, fortunately, I can't give many examples there, uh, but I can talk about a project that we have released open source called uh, the Modern Honey Network. Uh, so this is a, a free open source um, GPL version 3 licensed uh, project for deploying and managing honeypots at scale. So what this means is um, you download the, we call it MHN, you download MHN, install it locally as a server. Uh, from there, you can uh, deploy a honeypot really on, on a cloud-based server, server on your internal network, um, anywhere you want with just a few clicks. We've, we've really worked to make this like very streamlined. Uh, we think that honeypots are really useful um, and we think one of the reasons they're not more widely used is because there's a barrier to entry into just setting them up, uh, keeping them running, and then using their data. So this project helps you do all three of those things. Um, deployment is easy. Um, 
it automatically sets up data feeds, so the data gets aggregated back to the MHN server, and then from there it's exposed via REST APIs, and it's also stored in MongoDB, so if you want to do something that's a little bit fancier than our REST APIs allow, you can use MongoDB's you know, uh, functions to mine it. Uh, and we've gotten a pretty good community backing this project. Um, we've gotten you know, pull requests from, from people. We've had, uh, I think, around 250 people uh, download and install it, because we collect usage metrics when this isn't downloaded and installed. And we've had, I believe, over 1,000 honeypots deployed using this system. So it's, it's been interesting to, to follow the community and um, you know, watch this project grow. So now honeypot, though, I mean, you've got different types of honeypots and different goals and things like that. So, I mean, is it, and I think I've, you know, read about, like, low interactivity or medium or high interactivity where you actually, you know, allow attackers to get a shell and, you know, get into the box and allow them to actually do some things and that sort of interaction. Where, what are the features of your, this honeypot and what, what sort of data are you collecting around it? That's a good question. So we have focused on... Um, Low interaction honeypots. So, okay. the ones that we have support for, and most of them were pre-existing. So, most of the honeypots that you can deploy with MHN were not developed by ThreatStream. They were developed by okay. either Academia or the HoneyNet project. So, yeah. uh, uh, Dynea is one of the, is probably the, the biggest one that most people install. It knows um, server. Um, it's really useful. Um, Conpot is industrial control system honeypot. Uh, Glassdoff is a web application honeypot. Um, Shockpot is one that we developed internally and released pretty much a day or two after the Shellshock vulnerability was announced. So this mimics a system that's vulnerable to the Shellshock vulnerability. And when someone tries to exploit that vulnerability by having a machine download some sort of payload, the honeypot will download the payload and ship it to us. Um, so that was kind of an interesting one that MHN enabled us to do because we have We've made it so easy to kind of download, deploy, and collect the data. We're able to, to set up the uh, Shellshock honeypot, really just develop it. I think it took about six hours to, to develop it. It took about 15 minutes to write a script to deploy it, and then from there we pushed it out to um, about 50 honeypots glo uh, deployed globally. So we were able to start collecting data really quickly. Um, yeah. And then we have a few, there's a few other honeypots I'm kind of forgetting right now, uh, but we have support, I think, for eight sensors. Um, and we're, we're constantly adding new ones as we find them. WordPot mimics a WordPress honeypot, or mimics a WordPress blog. Um, so yeah. The uh, the whole concept of honeypots is a um, I have a I have a warm spot in my heart for it because back in the mid to late 90s, I had a job where it was slow, and I would go and like I reverse engineered the Telnet protocol and FTP, and you know, and I'd rewrite this stuff in Perl you know, just to figure out the protocol and stuff like that. So I, I enjoy talking about honeypots and, you know, and mimicking services and stuff like that. So so it's been interesting. Um, we we see it, have seen two deployment models for honeypots that have been useful. One of them is deploying them inside your network, behind your firewall, so external traffic should not really be hitting them. This really eliminates all the noise of the scanners and things like that. Um, and we have some customers who have who've done this. And they get, they said, two to three alerts per month where something hits their honeypot. Um, and they find that to be almost zero false positive in terms of not necessarily like there's a compromise, but there's uh, at, at least someone who's misbehaving on the network. So right. they, they have found compromised machines. Uh, they have found employees who decided to scan, you know, blocks of their network 
without being authorized, and they found penetration testers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And the other one is uh, deploying it outside your network at scale, so either using cloud-hosted boxes or um, deploying them you know, far and wide. These get a lot of noise. There's a lot of things that are always scanning uh, from you know, Robert Graham's mass scan, um, like that whole team, to just web crawlers, because part of a precursor to web scanning or web crawling a lot of times is doing a port 80 and 443 port scan. So you'll see right. that. Um, but that data can also be useful for other reasons. Yeah. There's um, the, one of the things that's always bugged me is, um, well, who is that, Bob? Um, I think it's SANS and their D-Shield data. Yeah. And they try to shore, show uh, port activity. And it's got to be one of the most cryptic things to look at. You know, you type in a port and it'll show you its usage over the last 24, 48 hours or week or something like that. And there's no sort of reference point. You might see it go up or down, but you don't know if it's, you know, extremely busy or if it's just simple noise or something like that. Are you guys, when you guys are collecting this data, are you, can anybody go look at this data or are you aggregating it for public consumption or is it, how much of that is available on the back end? So anyone who downloads ImageN and asks for access to the data will give data will give access to that that data. Um, Threadstream customers get access to all the data, um, and really, if there's a security researcher who says um, I'm interested in this subset of data that you may not make public, we're definitely open to sharing as long as they contribute to the project in some way, either uh, by downloading and deploying it, or contributing like code, or contributing with research. Uh, we're more than, than happy to share all the data we collect. Mm, good. That's great. Um, are you going to do a better interface than uh, the SANS D-Shield? <laughs> Our interface is pretty good. I would I'd recommend checking out if you have some time. Um, part of what we have is a uh, we've integrated HoneyMap, which is a it's a map, like real-time visualization, which is pretty nice. Uh, we have some customers who actually put this on their operations floor. It's really cool visualization. Um, and then the, the other pieces are um, use brute, uh, Bootstrap, and um, they're, I'd say they're, they're pretty nice looking. We have you know, geo information with flags, and uh, you can see the attacker data. You can search it. Um, so it's pretty good. Okay, that map is severely lacking sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> I just went there, and it is severely lacking. It's a halfway decent projection, at least, but, man, you, are, you need more sound effects there. Maybe, maybe we should transition the discussion to talk about maps real quick. Well, before we do that, I, I, so I'm just totally amazed, right, because, like, not only like, – I think this is a Jason thing. Like, everybody named Jason is just, like, wicked super smart. Um, <laughs> so it's still yesterday that was a backhanded compliment, and, like, you don't Thank get you. those, so that's good. Um, but, but um, so you, you're, you're super smart. You've done awesome in school. You've done great research before. You've worked for the government. You've done startups, and you, like, you've actually started your own startup, and, and actually you're now – like, Threshing really isn't a startup, but it's still kind of have that startup you feel. Like, what's been harder, like, finding finding bad bad things on the Internet or working for the government or running a startup? Like, between those three, what's the hardest? Uh, I would say the most challenging is working at a startup. Um, okay. I, I made this joke earlier that I feel like finding the bad guys is not hard. They, they find you. Um, so with MHN, you, you'll see that they will come to you. Um, but I would say working at a startup is, is challenging, but also very rewarding. Uh, so sometimes, uh, depending on like, what's going on, you might have to work some long hours to uh, meet a customer deadline. But when you do, it feels so good. Um, 
kind of making that impact, uh, getting that sale. And um, so I would say that's more challenging, but it's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but I guess one one thing to be clear, I didn't start ThreatStream. I, I Wait, but it'd be, it'd be good to explain, because you, you actually did start a different startup, though. I haven't started a startup. I've, okay. worked, at, I've worked at two different startups. Okay. One uh, was called Endgame, and now ThreatStream. Okay. Actually, Jay, it might be interesting to get um, Jason back on and get Alex and a couple other data science -y people just as like a, a startup show. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we could find uh, a few other people too. Oh, that's what so, I said. I, I, I think I think we can find more. I just I I, I know those two right now, so I just yeah, that'd be kind of fun. Yeah, Mike Sconzo might be another one if you haven't already talked with him. He worked at Click Security. Yeah, we, a, we we had him on a couple of shows ago. Last show. Last show. Wow, really? No, two shows ago. Yeah, I was gonna say two shows ago. Yeah. Um, great. Can we talk about maps now? We could talk about maps now. Actually, I feel I, I now feel really horrible because I wasn't actually making fun of your map. Um, <laughs> I really I honestly wasn't. I I actually hadn't gone. Got, got, I hadn't. So if it's map.honeynet.org in case anyone is out there looking for. And we have link as I, as anyone that listens to it knows. We actually post all the links to all this stuff. Um, so I wasn't actually making fun of, of of Jason's project here at all in any way, shape, or form. But that's not that's not yeah. the one you're talking about, Jason, right? We I mean, we uh, we leverage the software that HoneyMap that, that HoneyMap uses. Okay. We we did not develop HoneyMap. We've extended it here and there, okay. but uh, we didn't develop this. But we use it. Um, yeah, I, I I was sort of mocking other vendors who just kind of decide that you know we're 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 gonna throw up a map. I I think that's a pretty accurate description of what usually happens too. Um, <laughs> and, and and just kind of like you know like make it look as really cool and sci-fi and whatever is possible and there's really not a whole lot of your, your insight you're going to gain from those so that was the whole in case anyone really I mean in case no one got that from the blog post that was extremely sarcastic nor the github repo which is also extremely sarcastic. Well let's let's take a step back Bob you did you did a blog post on this right? Yeah there, there's a blog post on, on DDSec uh, it, it's about rolling your own uh, yeah the what? It references a project that you you had over the last what week or two? Yeah, so I, um, Alex Pinto and I um, conspired to to build the. Uh, I, I think it was your. I think you instigated it, and then I kind of started yeah. it, and then Alex co-conspired co to to work on it. Yeah. Um, basically, to create a roll your own IP attack map, because there's just been like I, I think I I think it was, I forget who it was that just did one recently. But it was just the last straw for me because like everybody just, and their mother just seems to be like making these IP attack graphs, and I, it's just silly. Yeah. It is silly, but a lot of people put these on their operations floors. They look really cool, and when you bring visitors to an, a security operations floor, they need to see something visual that's compelling. I, I, I totally uh, get it, but, 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 but and, th and this is why they can use IPU, because now you can, like, say, it's like just like FireEye Mandiant. FireEye Mandiant can now use my thing instead of their own and have everything come from Russia, like 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 their reports say. I mean, China, like I like 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 from China, like like the reports say. Or you can you, you can blame any country. It's like if you're having like you know some some company come in to 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 show to show your sock. I mean, this is the beautiful thing about and and it's got sound. Nobody's has sound. This one has sound. Yeah, let me see if I can just get the sound to work here. Oh, there we go. That's the glad one. That's my favorite. Yeah. So just some thanks real quick. Essentially, what you did, Bob, is you created this map and you're just randomly showing from here to there 
and uh, in, and in this case with sound effects. Well, it's not random. It, it, it isn't random. Um, I, I about once a week, I actually I forget who I'm grabbing it from. Um, I'm just gonna leave that playing in the background. You can leave it playing in the background for now. Uh, I, I'll Arbor. So I, Arbor Networks puts up a daily thing about like who are the the top bad places on the internet where bad the scans or whatever's coming from. So like once a week, I sample that table and I build a table of probabilities and I update the the I update the probability table for that. So it's actually yeah, there's like the top 20, 25. Um, sources of the default map, so it's actually you know from a from a data perspective, it's actually statistically accurate according to what Arbor saw from that particular time. Uh, but then you can go into random mode, and then you could go nuts by actually like having it just constantly like, have attacks happen from country to country too. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun, and you can rebrand it, right? You can Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, no one has to go build another silly map anymore. You can just right. use this thing. Yeah. Nice, nice work there, Bob. It's all open source, all D three. So have fun with it, people. And you know, I, I fully expect to see people, you know, building their own real, real, real things from this. So, do you have a web interface or some sort of real time interface with this, so you could interface with systems that are really producing real time data? Yeah, data? yeah, yeah, you could. So yeah, I mean, so to, 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 I, I will take it down one, one more level than than the high shallow level I was keep talking at. So it is D three, and it is using um, an, an event based architecture within D three. So if you actually have a source that updates in real time, you could either connect a WebSocket to it and just swap out some portions of code, um, and it can talk real time or pull pull JSON data from a thing on a real time thing and update. So right now it's just you know doing a a the next thing in the probability from it, but you could swap that code out and have it talk to a real data source and have it do the exact same thing. So yeah, it's totally usable from real time data if you want to do that. Okay. Yeah. And you can change the sounds. Like you can update whatever sound you want, which is I, I, I'm, that is like the most. Every single one of these maps lacks sound, and that's the most. That's so far that's been the biggest feature from it. That everyone talks about it. Yeah. Lack of sound. Interesting. So we should talk uh, talk news articles and stuff, huh? Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't, we, we, and you provided zero means for me to actually, like, paste in any of the cool transition bumper music between one of the other giant things for that. Oh. So I'm, so I'm just going to put it over you talking, which is fine. That Great. People won't mind that at all. Do that. Um, yeah, as, as, as folks have, have known, um, past couple episodes, we have been doing this kind of data science link roundup. Um, and yeah, we and all three of us on this particular one read quite a bit, and I, there's some overlap. So I think we've brought to top of mind a couple of the ones, and I think we've we've killed the map topic, except for um, I, I think what's a pretty interesting thing. I'm going to try to get the your. So this is from the user experience blog, and I, I tweeted this out the other night. But it's map or don't map, and it's really neat little you know kind of snarky but accurate flowchart. For like when 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 you're going to do a map, and and I think one of the key elements from it is that the majority of the the paths in the flow end up being to make a bar chart or show or make a bar chart, for then then show numbers. But there are a couple of cases where you want to actually do a map it, and and I can't emphasize this enough for the infosec crowd. Yes, there needs to be some whiz bang stuff for when you're trying to show off stuff for customers. I get that, but for the most part, when you're trying to make sense of data, 
um, really numbers and bar charts are going to take you way further with this than I think any map is going to do. Um, you might be able to get some insights from a map that you're not going to get from a bar chart, but the reality is, is bar charts and tables, I mean, it all opens up to you two to, to say, yes, I'm an idiot or, or, or no, I'm right, but um, I, I still think a bar chart is like 10 times better than any map that you're going to do when, when you're doing security data. I completely agree. Yep. Absolutely. So if, everyone, fo everyone, follow that map that, that that's up there. Go ahead. Sorry, Jay. With with the exception of your uh, state bins. You well, know, state well, the, that, yeah, the state bins isn't so much of a map though, and like I, you know, like well, and so that's an R package um, that I modeled after a D three visualization that um, I think the Washington Post did, and I just I got I don't know why it, it gra I gravitated towards it, but I just got, became enamored with it. I think the big thing lacking with state bins is it's U S focused, and you know there is be, there, right. you know, the, the, despite you know the U S you know people there are there is more outside the borders of the U S and the U S and um, Right. I, I think making statements for various countries and then trying to have a, a different representation for the, the globe would be kind of interesting because it really melts away the geography because I, I was talking with Hay about this and, and Andrew Hay about this and, you know, really I, Americans are the worst, but I think there's some other countries that are probably bad too. You know, Americans couldn't really maybe even find Texas, let, let alone where Mexico or other places are. And, and yeah, I'm being really critical, but it's all right. Um, and that's why having statements you, know, you keep the geography features, but you don't force people to have to memorize what shape a state is because you've got the little you know, two-digit ISO code for it, although that might be troublesome for some Americans too. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 but I think globally, if, if there are a way to do that, and, and, and I, I was already starting to work on some for Scotland just because I was playing with Scotland elections the other, the other week. Um, I think you could do it from there too and kind of map and do some other ones for, for others. And there was actually a really neat, something close to state bins, um, and somebody, somebody did a fork of this and did something similar, but I think the Business Week people did it better. Uh, great viz in one of the, I think two business weeks ago where they were talking about Obamacare, and I don't care about the Obamacare part, but they used actual hexagons for the... Um, uh, the 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 states and I think they're trying to make it look like some kind of medical thing, but I think it worked out a lot better than if they did a chloropleth. Um, the chloropleths are still like you know the 2009 through 2013, and we can stop that now and kind of move on. You think the time for a chloropleth is is done and over, Bob? I, I I think the time of the chloropleths. I, I I think for security especially, I think we I, I think we can. It's just a fad. Yeah, I I think we can like lay off them for a while. I, they're totally usable in other in other me. And I can I I have to I, I answer a lot of Stack Overflow questions and I do a lot of geo ones on there because I love I love maps I love geo stuff, and it's they're, they're totally completely useful for other things. Just for security, they tend to not be the smartest and most useful thing to use. So. Okay. Um, the one thing I, I really wanted to get a mention out, though, um, and this is our—it's uh, one of the the projects that that Rafi Marty and Secviz.org puts out. Uh, the the Davix toolkit, which is basically an ISO distribution um, of a whole, whole bunch of security tools and visualization tools, uh, it just got updated with a whole slew of new stuff on there. So if you don't want to go download a whole bunch of stuff yourself and and kind of pollute your home system with things, you can use this to kind of get a feel for and play with some of these things and even install from it and have it be your base system for doing things. But uh, a huge update, um, and you know it includes things like um, IPython and RStudio, which of course is near to dear and, and to our hearts, but it also includes a couple other ones as well too. Like Gephi was not part of it before, and it's now a first-class citizen. The Elk Stack, um, so Elasticsearch Log Stash in Kibana, um, that's used a lot. I mean, and any security person that's not playing with that, you really should go out there and like take a week and just start playing with that because that that's where a lot of things are. Um, but but there's some other things as well too. And, and Jason, I, I think you have some experience with the folks that made FlowTag. Is that right? 
Yeah, so I went to grad school with Chris Lee, and uh, I believe he's the, the author of Flowtag, and I guess this was just recently added to Davix. Uh, Chris is a um, awesome I would say security researcher, and his focus, at least back then, was security and visualization. I'm not sure if that's still his focus, but uh, he's done some interesting work. Uh, he has other projects on his website, too. If you have time, I would recommend checking them out. And I, I haven't dug into Flowtag. Uh, does, so have other one of you two actually played with Flowtag before? I, I played with it a long time ago. Okay. Um, from what I remember, it's it's meant to be like a collaborative um, PCAP exploration tool. So I, I believe it's meant for like more than one user working at a time or on the same PCAP. Uh, but it, it's been a while. Cool. Yeah, I I think it might be interesting to have a couple of these tool makers um, as well on, on the show at some point, Jake, because there's I think there's a lot of interesting tools out there and and getting the folks on to have and to kind of talk about what their the impetus was behind doing it and talk about the uses of it, I think might be interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, there was another one. Um, I don't know how many of these you want to get through, but there was another one where, and I'm trying to find. So uh, Mark Litwinstick, and I'm totally probably killing that name, just like people kill my name, so it's cool. Uh, totally not a security dude, um, but an interesting post on how to use Python to get all the IPv4 who is records. And um, I think Jay, you know, you and I have kind of, um, I, okay, maybe I have whined about it. You have, our, you have more articulately represented the case. But um, who is? And I, and I've said this at work a lot um, to the team. I, I, the more that we dig into stuff and see the under, uh, you know, what, what underpins the internet from both DNS and who is and a bunch of other things, I am just totally amazed that anything actually works at all on the internet on a daily basis in any way, shape, or form. Um, who is is this nasty morass of folks who don't work together very well and have multiple different formats and different policies and all sorts of different things and getting records in any kind of decent way either means you pay through the nose form or risk getting your IP banned forever and that's one thing I'm worried about this so he's actually scraping the Whois servers and using different parsers to grab different records because you have to do that and you know, I, I don't recommend necessarily doing this on a regular basis to individuals because you might actually get your home network banned from being able to do a whole lot. Um, so if you're going to do anything, like maybe spin up a bunch of Amazon things and you know, have have, it, have them get banned or something. But uh, it's I, I think and it's it's interesting work and it's definitely good to read that because you get an idea of the challenges associated with working with Whois data, but you also get an idea of the value of working with Whois data too. And you know, Jason, we're, you know, like so our team at Verizon is doing a lot of stuff with Whois and DNS stuff, and I, I'm assuming that you also work with Whois data as well as the, the DNS stuff that you were talking about before. Yes, we do. We, we've also found it to be interesting and challenging. It's, it's pretty dirty. Yeah, I, and see, see, you guys are being nice. And I, 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 I think someone needs to whip all these guys. In it. But I know there are overarching bodies around who is. There's actually a whole standard for how to actually make a, make a decent um, API server for who is and have you know uniformly formatted records, but the people that run the registrars and who is serv services, they don't even like conform to the actual real standards that they're supposed to conform is from the consortium that they're part of. Um, I think I can it was that did a study like two years ago, and I think they it was something like 60% of, of of the ones were actually following what they should be following, and the rest of them might not even be available at certain times either. So it's it's just kind of crazy. How it's I, I again it's just amazing that all this stuff actually still works and, and everyone should you know like the, the, the anyone that actually does stuff on the internet should just be very thankful if they get anything at all at this point. <laughs> if you can see anything on the internet, just be happy, right? I, I, that's where I am. 
And then think about, you know, so if they've got like a 60% success rate with that, and then, you know, like Jason, you talked about your classifier having 98% accuracy and the, the 2% was just killing you, you know. So, you know, get to who is data, and it's like 40% are not following standards or something like that. It's, yeah. It's a pretty, pretty big number. And um, I don't know if we need to take up a whole lot more time on the podcast. I'll throw a couple more links up for this one. But there's been a couple more really neat Viz links. Um, uh, you, you've got Flowing Data, which did a great tutorial on um, actually using small multiples in D3 and connecting them together, so interactive small multiples, which it's actually it's a great way to actually do small multiples because you can actually find and find and tweak things better than you can with any kind of static graph and kind of explore a little easier. And uh, uh, small, small multiples are what, Bob? Um, one of my favorite types of graphs. So rather than actually, so I like I'll give a very basic example. Rather than make a giant stacked bar chart, which is another cool link I could talk about them in a minute, or make you know like three thousand lines in a line chart to talk about stuff, you can actually split them out by faceted categories. Um, and we have some examples of that. Maybe I think on one of the posts that we have, but I've done that for a couple things. If you if if anyone's on Secmetrics or the Sierra Group, I, I post things there that use those all the time. I think it's a great way to actually look over categories. Using the same x and y scale, or sometimes not using the same x and y scale, depending on what you're trying to do, um, to compare it that way versus have everything be splattered onto one giant spaghetti mess or bar mess. Uh, it's I think it's I think it's a lot easier to follow that way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm not really sure. And then I think the one the, one of the Viz one that I just want to point out, and if you guys want to talk about it, other ones we can. But uh, Lynn Cherney, uh, who's just an awesome data scientist and a great Viz person, uh, and she's local too, so she's a local person. Um, a local is relative because anywhere in Maine, like anywhere in New England, is kind of local for me. Uh, just a great roundup uh, last week of October of a lot of different text analytics and visualization work. One of the things I found more exciting there than anything is uh, I used to play with processing a little bit, um, uh, and they actually have a new version of the processing JavaScript library out now that's actually easier to use than the other one. Um, and with a lot of other examples as well, too. So we'll put up a link to that one just so folks can kind of go play there. If D3 is not your cup of tea, and it, it, D3 is all like, all right, you have to bend your mind to think a certain way. Uh, I think P5 is, the, the P5 library for processing is a little more straightforward to use if anyone wants to kind of get into that work. You guys got anything you want to highlight from the list we talked about? or That fraud detection conspiring to ruin my recent trip? <laughs> that, that looked interesting, and I will expand it. Yeah, um, just real quick on that one. So Kaiser Fung from the junk charts. So if you if you're not looking at junk charts, you should just because it'll help you make better charts. Because like you you won't do the things that he makes fun of other people for doing. Right. Um, but this particular blog entry was great because he was trying to actually you know enjoy himself uh, at at a, uh, on a on a trip that he was taking in Rome and. The, the whole credit card fraud detection algorithm just completely failed, and he pretty much couldn't use any money anywhere. Um, and, and I think I tweeted out that, um, and one of my big things that I keep saying at work is, you know, humans don't scale. And it's not, I don't, it's not that I don't like humans. I, I like humans. Um, but, you know, you can't just throw an army of humans at some of the problems, which is why, like, Jason and the rest of us are trying to do some of this stuff with data. But at the same time, um, you cannot take humans out of the loop. And you know, he was even mentioning here that the folks that he was talking to on the support line had no clue what the algorithms were doing, how they worked, had no idea who to talk to about what was happening or how to override them or whatever. And I think that's just a great note for the security folks who think that you know, you're going to create this big black box solution that's going to find everything that's bad out in the internet. And then that's not going to happen. Um, we'll, right. we'll get better. And if, you know, Jason, you even alluded to that as well with you know, the 
you know, positive rate, but a 2% false positive rate on a billion records is a ton of stuff. So making that exposed to the user or making that be a decision system is kind of scary. But it being a yeah. tool for really smart security analysts, um, I think is you know that that's a that's a very valuable tool for them to do that. So I think making making the two work together is I think the challenge that we all have is try to build the systems, the algorithms um, together to make it so that the humans can make better stuff and automate what you can, but have it be have it lessen the burden on on the analysts when they're actually trying to help make decisions and help find real badness where they are. I've seen some interesting work out of Google. I think it was their their spam team. It might not have been like their mail spam, but it could have been like link spam or one of the other groups. Where they, you know, had a very similar problem with, um, you know, high accuracy, but the false positives were false positives were killing them. So one of the things that they did was they kind of gamified the portion where the humans can, um, you know, verify or deny a false positive or false, um, you know, verify or deny whether something was true or, or right or wrong, I guess. And um, so they made the human interface to be a lot more scalable and a lot more tolerate, like a lot more tolerable which I thought was really interesting, and I see that as kind of part of the solution, is kind of helping to build out those interfaces between the human to where it's not so monotonous that you, you can't do it longer than an hour or um, you just can't do it more than you know, once a week or something like that. Like it has to be, that piece has to be scalable as well. And um, so I thought that was really interesting. If I can find the link, I'll, I'll share it um, at the end. Cool. Great. All right. Well, Jason, do you have any uh, upcoming projects or anything that you're going to be working on in the next uh, few weeks to months to next year or so? Or, or speaking anywhere? Um, we are presenting at Flowcon. Um, we're presenting a little bit about uh, the Modern Honey, Network, Modern Honey Network at Flowcon. Um, we're hoping to be presenting at a handful of other conferences, but uh, we're still waiting to hear back. Um, so as, as we find out, I'll definitely let you guys know. Uh, as far as projects go, the blog that... Um, you know, kind of building the the codex of the algorithms and features. I'm hoping to have that out in like the next month or so. So that's kind of a personal side project. That's a project. Um, and then we have some research in ThreatStream that I'm not sure if we're going to make public or not. So I can't really discuss it, but we definitely have some cool stuff going on. Um, so hopefully we can make it public. It kind of all just depends on uh, how things are going. Good. Well, it's been great having you on. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. And that wraps up Episode 11. Bye, everyone. Bye.